Hey, this is a Hakawati production. My guest today is a professor of marketing at Concordia University in Montreal and an expert in the application of evolutionary psychology in marketing and consumer behavior. Super interesting. He's also the author of multiple scientific papers and several books. His latest book is called The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas Are Killing Common Sense. Please welcome to the show, Gad Saad. How are you, Nadia? I'm good. Welcome to the show, Gad. Thank you very much. So, by the way, I've been on a on a sad diet for the last couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and has your mind expanded? Has your soul been enriched? Um, well, I've been listening to tons of your podcasts. I've delved into your new book, The Parasitic Mind. Of course, I my mind has been expanded. Um, I, I think you have some amazing ideas on things. And um, also, I love that you're having conversations with so many different people. Um, but I just want to say before we get started, though, that your name is basically like a fountain that keeps on giving. I was looking at your Twitter. I've seen you called the Godfather. I've seen you uh, called like people say, in God we trust. And then, of course, there's the name of your podcast, uh, The Sad Truth. Exactly. Exactly. So what is The Sad Truth? Uh, this, the, so The Sad Truth is S-A-A-D. It's a show that I started, I think, about six years ago. It's grown tremendously. It, it's a combination of things. In some cases, I might invite people for chats, people of all walks of life. Other times, I just turn on the the laptop and just you know, discuss something for five minutes. Other times I am mocking or satirizing something. So it's really a combination of things, but it's always with the intention of informing, educating, entertaining, and so on and so forth. Well, it's great. I've really been enjoying it. And it's very, it's always um, in step with whatever is happening, uh, you know, in the media sphere. So it's, it's, it's really nice just to catch up on what every, what all the different sides and opinions are on, on what's happening in the world. Well, what's happening mostly in, in the U.S., I would say. But in your book, The Parasitic Mind, you talk about your experience growing up in Lebanon as a Lebanese Jew and how your family was forced to leave the country during the Civil War. What was that like? Well, it was very traumatic, as you might imagine. Uh, we had li- we were part of the last group of Jews who had steadfastly, you know, refused to leave Lebanon. Most of my extended family had already, you know, left Lebanon prior to the civil war. Uh, but there were, you know, I don't I don't know exactly how many, maybe one thousand Jews left in Lebanon by the time we were there in the start of the civil war. And it's so, as you probably know, it started in 1975. We were there for the first year of the war. And where it became, you know, really infeasible, if not impossible, to be Jewish in Lebanon, we we saw a lot of things, and certainly as a child, I saw a lot of things that uh, no human should see. And then we left Lebanon. But then when we got to Montreal, my parents uh, kept returning to Lebanon uh, because they still had business interests. And on one of their return trips in 1980, so several years after we had left Lebanon, uh, they were kidnapped by Fatah. Uh, and but luckily we, we were able to rescue them. So since 1980, no one has uh, returned to Lebanon from my immediate family. Wow! Oh my gosh! What do you mean you were able to rescue them? Was it like a ransom thing? Uh, so my mother's best friend was the personal dresser of Hafez al-Assad, 
the Syrian president at the time, the the father of the current president. And uh, so, as I understand it, I was only 15 years old at the time. So when I say we rescued them, it, it's not that I had anything to do with it. As a matter of fact, I didn't know that they were kidnapped when they were kidnapped. Uh, they had kept that story hidden from me until they rescued them. And so I think my siblings had reached out. My siblings are much older than me, and they 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 had reached out uh, to this woman. Her name is Ahsan. And then through her, she, I think, connected with Hafiz al-Assad, who then connected with uh, Arafat, as the story goes. And then they tried to rescue them. And finally, they found them with this one particular group. I think it was under a group under Abu Nidal, if I'm not mistaken. The story, as, as I understand it, was actually one that had to do with the owner of the building where my father had a store in Hamra was trying to buy the store from my dad. He knew that as Jews, we weren't in a very good position. So he hires these guys to try to get a confession out of them that they are Israeli spies, which of course they weren't. So I think the, the bottom line was that it was a money story, as you pointed to. Uh, I don't know how much money was paid as a ransom or whatever, but because my parents were connected, we were able to get them out. Okay. So what about before, like, the Civil War? Did, did your family uh, live as a Jewish family, like, comfortably? Was it an issue that they were Jewish? Like, a lot of people still have questions about that, and it's kind of yes. so long ago that I don't think people really understand how it was before all of this happened. Yeah, I mean, you lived comfortably until you don't, right? You you don't have a heart attack until you drop dead of a heart attack, right? So, and uh, Jews in the Middle East in general, and even in a country as quote progressive as Lebanon at the time, you 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 always knew that your time could be no longer welcome at any given moment, right? So. It's not as though every single day we were, you know, facing horrible abuse. Uh, my parents were, you know, well entrenched within Lebanese society. I had all sorts of friends, most of whom were not Jewish. I didn't go to Jewish school. I went to a school called Lycée des Jeunes Filles. Uh, so we were fine. But wait, wait, you wait. All... Were you a girl when you were little? Uh, <laughs> I preceded the transgender craze. Uh, no, because they're actually in Lebanon, there were two schools, Lycée des Jeunes Filles and Lycée des Jeunes Garçons. I, I just happened to go to the one with Les Jeunes Filles, but they were, it was mixed, of course. Okay. Uh, so anyways, uh, you know, you, you always knew that you had this dark secret of you being Jewish. Now, of course, people, if they wanted to find out that you were Jewish, they could easily find out. They just have to go to Saturday uh, to the synagogue in Wadi Abu Jamil, and they would know that you're Jewish. So it's not as though it was so hidden. But you certainly, you know, knew your place. Be quiet. Don't advertise. And of course, I did face many counts of horrible anti-Semitism, some of which I do discuss in the parasitic mind growing up in Lebanon before the civil war. So I recount the story when uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser died in 1970, and there were all sorts of manifestations in the streets, you know, lamenting his death. One of the common cries was death to the Jews, death to the Jews. What, what did the Jews have to do with the death of Gamal Abdel Nasser? Nothing, but that's how it is. Uh, another time I was in class, actually at Lycée de Jeunes where the teacher had asked us to each, you know, stand up and say what we were going to be when we would grow up. You know, and one person gets up, I want to be a soccer player, I want to be a policeman, I want to be a doctor. And one guy gets up and says, when I grow up, I want to be a Jew killer. 
and everybody starts laughing and clapping and so on. So uh, anti-Semitism was always there. It didn't it didn't dictate your life, but you always knew that you were part of a very precarious minority. Hmm. So now that Israel is making all these peace deals with countries in the Middle East, what what are your thoughts on the prospect of and also, you know, uh, the UAE recently changed the law so that foreigners can buy uh companies and invest in the country. What do you think is going to happen once, you know, Israelis and Jews start investing in that country? Do you think this is, what are your thoughts on this? Look, I think that any tribalism is horrible. I always tell people to judge others by their individual merits and individual flaws. So before anything, I am God sad. I'm not Jew. I'm not Lebanese. Yes, those are part of my identity. But I present myself to the world as an individual with all my qualities and all my faults. I think the problem with the way Lebanon's Lebanese society was usually structured was that tribalism and religious tribalism was even part of the constitution, as you know, right? The president has to be of this religion. The prime minister has to be of that religion. So I think that the fact that there is now this demystification of Jews and Israelis where people can get to know each other, sit down for dinner, see that they're all the same, I think that could only be a good thing, right? So the, the quicker that we shed political tribalism, religious tribalism, any tribalism, and view ourselves as, you know, commonly bonded in a universal brotherhood, uh, the better it is. So I, I'm hopeful for the future, but let's wait and see. Yeah, I like that. That's a progressive way of looking at it. Although I do notice that you said brotherhood. <laughs> Not that I usually pick on these things, but since it's the kind of stuff that you talk about, uh, I'm going to point it out. Yes, humanity. So, and this is actually a great segue into what your book is kind of about, because although it's not about political, well, it is about political tribalism, but not in the way that you just talked about in the Middle East. It's more about what's happening in the U.S. and identity politics and how people are identifying with either the right or the left and with, uh, you know, liberal ideas. And they cling to those ideas at any cost and become almost uh, violent and aggressive about these ideas. Um, explain to everybody what you mean by the title of your book, Infectious Ideas and the Parasitic Mind. Right. So uh, so here I use something called neuroparasitology. So if you look in the animal kingdom, there are all sorts of incredible stories of how parasites take advantage of their hosts. Now, neuroparasites are parasites that specifically look for a host's brain. Uh, and then when they find the brain, they alter the host's behavior to suit their reproductive interests. So let me give you an example. There's a parasite called Toxoplasma gondii, which parasitizes the minds of mice, so that when a mouse is parasitized by this particular brain worm, it loses its innate fear of cats, and it actually becomes sexually attracted to the cat's urine, which is not a good thing for a mouse to be attracted to. And so I, when I saw this incredible scientific field of neuroparasitology, I had my epiphany. I realized, aha, that's how I'm going to explain how human minds can be infected, not by actual brain worms, but by what I call idea pathogens. Ideas that if you like, instead of driving us to the cat, drives us to the abyss of infinite lunacy. It drives us to lose our ability to critically think. Uh, up is down, left is right. And so I discuss a whole bunch of these idea pathogens in the book. Uh, so I'll give you one example of an idea pathogen. Postmodernism, which has been taught in the universities for you know 50 years, is the idea that there are no objective truths. Uh, we are completely shackled by subjectivity. We are completely shackled by our personal biases. 
Well, that's a terrible idea because scientists do wake up every day under the presumption that there are truths to be discovered. If, if, if we didn't think so, there'd be no point getting out of bed. So what I do in the book, and hence the parasitic mind and infectious ideas, I talk about where these bad ideas have come from, how they spread, and then ways by which we can vaccinate our minds against these idiotic ideas. Okay, sounds practical. Uh, I know you speak out about other things like um, affirmative action, for example, and it seems like you're uh, for kind of meritocracy, you think that's the way to go. But what about in situations where um, certain minority groups are not given equal opportunities or chances? I've heard women, for example, who are engineers talking about how if they're part of a male-dominated uh, group of engineers working on a project, and actually I heard this story from a uh, space engineer from Saudi Arabia, Michal Al-Shamimri, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Karim, but um, basically she was saying how she was doing all the work and at the end they gave all the credits to the male engineer. So how, if you're going to have like a meritocracy and you have, well, it's not really a meritocracy, but if you're not going to have some kind of affirmative action that's going to purposely Uh, point out the injustices and give advantages to minorities or women or whatever, how do you suggest that you change injustices that have been basically systemized into our societies? Sure. So I think the way you do that is by drawing a clear distinction between equality of opportunities and equality of outcomes. Equality of opportunities is what you're talking about. If there are systematic institutionalized forms of biases against particular groups, then we have to eradicate those. And for example, since you are from the Middle East, of course, there is, you know, the Middle East is not exactly, has not historically had a wonderful track record with how it deals with women. Uh, And so, of course, we need to eradicate those. The problem is that identity politics and affirmative action and so on doesn't go there. It actually argues that there should be equality of outcomes. Now, that's a dreadful idea. That's a cancer to human dignity. Because what it basically says that for any given uh, reality, there needs to be some demographic representation that is similar to what happens in society. Oh, Brown University doesn't have a transgender indigenous uh, person of color who is a full professor. Aha, it must be bigotry. No, right? Not Not every single reason why someone is not holding a particular position is due to institutionalized bigotry. So we have to draw a distinction between equality of outcomes, in which case we should fight for eradicating all systematic biases, and equality of, I mean, sorry, equality of opportunities, which we should should fight for, and never support equality of outcomes. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it always depends on the situation and the case that you take. The case that you just took makes a lot of sense. But then the case that I took kind of that doesn't really solve that issue or that problem. You know what I mean? Of course. So I'll I'll give you an example of how uh, equality of uh, outcomes is is, uh, dreadful and and how the victimology narrative, if it is not corrected in light of new data, becomes a an attack on the ethos of meritocracy. So for example, uh, if you are in Afghanistan, it's very likely the case uh, that you know women and young girls don't have equal access to to education. And then of course we should fight to to redress that problem. On the other hand, when it comes to universities in the West, the idea that women are being held back is simply not true. And so let me share with you data. There's this little thing called data that has a way of uh, creating pesky realities that fight against our victimhood narrative. So 
if you look at U.S. data, every single level of education. So in the U.S., you have what's called an associate degree, which is half a bachelor's. So you look at associate's degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, and doctoral degree. So across four levels of education and across five races. So, so pretty much every single sort of racial category that the U.S. keeps track of and across every single level of education. So that's 20 different cells, four times five. Women outnumber men in every single cell. You're, let, let me repeat, in every single race by educational level, women outnumber men. Yet we still hang on to the narrative that when a woman walks on campus in the US or in Canada, they're basically walking with the ISIS and Taliban. So that's a false narrative, right? Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't still sexism on university campuses, but the idea that we need to create more programs to help women in the US or Canada is simply not true according to the data. So yes, let's fight against injustices, but let's not hang on to victimology narratives when the victimology no longer exists. That's fair enough. And definitely from where I'm sitting here in the Middle East, and by the way, I'm originally from Montreal. I'm not from here, oh. but, but I've been here five years. And definitely from here, it's a different perspective, a different problem, because I think all those women, I think, are also well represented in the educational system in the Middle East, across the Middle East. They still don't have equal rights under the law. So in terms of, you know, basic stuff, we're still way behind what you have in the West. So we haven't gotten to that point where it's kind of crossing the line and going to the other end, which is something you talk about your in your book, radical feminism. What exactly does that mean? I don't know if every you know, most people are familiar with what that really means. Sure. So most Well, all of the idea passages that I discuss in The Parasitic Mind originally start off with a kernel of truth and some noble cause, but then they metamorphosize into lunacy. So take, for example, equity feminism. Equity feminism is a great idea. It actually speaks to what we were talking about earlier. Equity feminism basically says there should be absolutely no reason why men and women shouldn't be equal under the law. There should never be any reason why there's any institutional sex specific bigotry, and therefore we should eradicate any such system. Well, guess what? Then I'm an equity feminist and you are an equity feminist. Radical feminism or or militant feminism now extends this to the level of lunacy. It basically says in the pursuit of equality for the sexes, let us now build a narrative that rejects that there are any distinguishable differences between men and women. Men and women are indistinguishable and any difference between men and women must be due to the patriarchy and to social construction. Well, that's idiotic. That's imbecilic. The average three-year-old knows this to be false. And as an evolutionary psychologist who studies evolved sex differences, I can assure you that there are many things on which men and women are exactly the same, and there are many things on which men and women are different precisely due to evolutionary reasons. So you see how equity feminism is a great idea. When it metamorphosizes into insane social justice, it becomes a departure from truth. It becomes a murder of truth, and that's what we have to fight against. Yeah. And I guess in the U.S., there are some people who want to insist that there are no real differences or that we're just trained to be different. Right. Is that what's going on? They're saying exactly. Yeah. That it's through socialization. But you're arguing that that's not the case. Exactly. And, and more generally. So one of the other idea passages I talk about is something that I call biophobia. Biophobia is the fear of using biology 
to explain human phenomena, right? So many people are perfectly happy to let biology explain the behavior of your dog, the mosquito, the zebra, and the giraffe. But don't you dare, Dr. Saad, say that humans are driven by biology. So somehow biology explains the behavior of every single species on earth except one called human beings. And, and I understand the reflex for that because people don't like the idea that we are tied to our biology. They prefer to think that we are infinitely malleable, right? Infinitely plastic. We could change in every direction, right? And by the way, that's one of the reasons why, for example, transgender activism now has become so powerful, right? Because it basically says, hey, don't worry, you're not even tied to your genitalia. If if you decide that you self-identify as a woman or male or one of the other genders, then so be it. Now, when, when I attack transgender activism, people think that I am being transphobic. You'd be hard pressed to find someone who is more socially liberal than me. As a matter of fact, I'm all for transgender rights. But in fighting for transgender rights, again, we don't murder truth, right? We don't teach seven-year-old children that boys and girls menstruate. No, girls menstruate. You see what I mean? So again, it shows you how in the pursuit of social justice, Oftentimes what these activists do, they murder and rape truth, and that should never be the case. You should never, you should be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. I could be very socially progressive while never attacking truth. Are there actually people telling kids that boys menstruate? Or are you just using that as an extreme example? Oh, no, no, no. I'm being literal. As a matter of fact, Nadia, uh, J.K. Rowling, the billionaire author of the uh, Harry Potter series, who is herself an ultra super progressive person, got into big trouble because uh, someone, some article or whatever was writing about people who menstruate. And then she wrote a, a, a sarcastic tweet where she said, um, I wonder what those people who menstruate are called. Oh, wait a minute, they're called women. And then she was attacked and they were trying to cancel her because she was such a bigot. She was akin to a Nazi because she argued that women can menstruate. Whereas the reality is sometimes women menstruate and sometimes boys menstruate. I'm not being satirical, I'm being literal. As a matter of fact, Nadia, I appeared in front of the Canadian Senate in 2017. So a chaired professor, an evolutionary psychologist in the 21st century has to appear in front of the Canadian Senate to confirm to them that, no, no, trust me, senators, there is such a thing as male and female. It's insane. Yeah, I can see what you mean by how things have gone too far also, because there's value in, for example, changing the language when it comes to jobs. Like, you know, instead of saying fireman, you say firefighter and then, you know, uh, flight attendant instead of stewardess. But then when you go a little bit further and then you, you don't want to use the word woman, it's kind of odd. I, I see what you're saying. Um, but I, I know you speak about other things. Uh, I've heard like um, I've heard you talking recently on one of your podcasts about other things that have gone too far. For example, you attended a concert. Uh, I think it was it at Concordia or McGill where the orchestra was playing, you know, postmodern music. <laughs> I, right. Uh, how ridiculous it was because it was just like weird sounds. It had no musical. Uh, and, and basically your argument is that aesthetically to most humans' ears, this is not real music. And in the same vein, you've kind of criticized companies like Dove, for example, that, that who are doing these ads with all kinds of different women who are, are not necessarily what we think of as, you know, model beauties. And I've heard you saying that, you know, 
the fact is that aesthetically, uh, uh, most of some of these women who are not what we think of as as you know as beautiful as what we're used to seeing, they're not as beautiful. So is this is this an argument that you're still prepared to make? That you feel like they're trying to you know sell us this idea that all beauty is equal when that's not the case? Uh, yes, I'm still prepared to make it. Uh, look, uh, every person uh, deserves to live. Uh, with dignity, every person should hopefully live free of bigotry. But uh, we are a sexually reproducing species. Uh, we do use attributes that we desire in the opposite sex in fantasizing about people of the opposite sex. The average three-year-old pigeon knows this, right? But from the perspective of Dove, of course, it, it's, it makes perfect sense to argue that, hey, ladies, don't worry about it. There is no such thing as universal beauty. You're all equally beautiful. Well, you're not, right? I know that when I was a 20-year-old soccer player and I had eight packs as my abs, and I take off if I take off my shirt then, uh, I'm likely to draw the attention of more people when I had a six-pack uh, or an eight-pack than when I do today as a 56-year-old male who doesn't have a six-pack, right? Uh, now, it would be silly for me to say, but that's not fair. The matriarchy is pro is promulgating this idea that guys who have fat around their uh, tummies are not as attractive as, as you know gorgeous male archetypes. The reality is we are a sexually reproducing species. So therefore, the reason why Beyonce is viewed as more desirable than my aunt, Tante Henriette, <laughs> is because because she holds certain physiological markers that are universally desired. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't tell people that, hey, you're all unique and lovely in your own way, but to promulgate the idea that we're all equally beautiful, we're not, right? I mean, and we know this through a million different studies, right? So for example, you can go around the world to cultures that are unbelievably different from each other. So you can go to a tribe in the Amazon that has never been exposed to Western media images. And if you point to them, you know, what is the type of guy that they like or what is the type of women that they like, they will give you the exact same preferences as we will if we go down to the street in Hamra in Beirut, or if we do in the Negev desert, or if we do in Bolivia, because people share a common biological heritage that's driven by evolutionary processes. So yes, Dove is being very smart and promulgating the idea that we're all equally beautiful, but it's a lie, we're not. Well, I'm gonna disagree with you there because I think a lot of these tribes you know, would prefer, for example, a fuller woman who has a lot of curves, maybe even who's obese because it's a symbol of, of fertility and wealth. But on that note, I don't think Dove is saying all women are equally beautiful, but they are trying to say that there are different types of beauty that you can can be, you know, you can have a layer of fat on you and still be attractive. And so if you and, and, and you know, you're a professor of marketing. My theory is that we're being sold this idea of beauty. If you think about how in, you know, recent years, a giant butt is like considered sexy, right? It's almost like a deformed size. And now we think that's hot. 20 years ago, when models were stick thin, that would have been considered like completely repulsive. So there's definitely some effect of what we consider beautiful coming from what we're seeing on media. So if we start to see more variations of beauty, which we are starting to see, if you think about brands uh, like Fenty, uh, Rihanna's uh, lingerie brand, she's showing all kinds of different like shapes of women, then our idea of what's attractive, I think, can change and be affected. So I'm not sure I agree with you 100%, although obviously, you know, if someone has you know, 
rotten teeth and I don't want to like offend anyone, but like <laughs> there are certain things that are definitely unattractive right. to most human beings. But I don't think that it's as narrow as what you're saying it to be. No, you're actually right. And 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 I don't mean to, to make it to have made it sound as narrow. What you describe is something that I've written about extensively. Much of what we are is driven by an interaction between our genes and our environment. So, for example, when it comes to the waist to hip ratio, which is the hourglass figure, that figure starts off like imagine a radio dial that you set at a particular place. And then depending on the environmental conditions, you move the dial to the right or to the left. So your example of, well, you know, in certain environments, men might prefer heavier women. That is exactly in line with evolutionary principles. It exactly speaks to the fact that we start with a set point, which we then either shift right or left as a function of environmental contingencies. Now, what is true, though, is that the very thin girl that you spoke about that was in style 20 years ago, or the Rubenesque girl of 400 years ago in by paintings in Rubens where the women were much more rotund, Guess what? If you take their waist to hip ratio, they're exactly the same. They are from 0.68 to 0.72. So in other words, this is the uh, manifestation of what E.O. Wilson said, the genes hold culture on a leash. In other words, the leash can be varied, right? So some cultures might prefer women to be more rotund. Some cultures might prefer them to be less rotund, but no culture prefers women who look like male Olympic swimmers. In other words, the leash cannot be infinitely variable. You follow what I'm saying? Yes, but I think you have to be careful with the male Olympic swimmers because, you know, uh, <laughs> some people might like that. <laughs> oh, well, let, let me ask you this. Do you know many women who fantasize about guys who have body types that are hourglass figure? And if you know such a culture, please send it to me because I'll make you very famous, Nadia. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. But I think of someone like, for example, uh, Serena Williams, who's a tennis player. I mean, she doesn't have a very like feminine type, but I imagine that some people do find her very attractive, even though she's very athletic. Not many women actually look like have a very like a completely male looking body. So I think the spectrum is pretty wide, but I see what you're saying. I definitely see what you're saying. Um, but as a scholar in evolutionary psychology, can you give like specific examples of how men and women have evolved differently from a behavior perspective? Like what are some, what's a behavior that men have and that women have that's biologically driven? Right, so for example, when it comes to, as we were talking about now the last few minutes, uh, mating preferences, there are many traits that men and women prefer in their partners that are exactly the same. So these are called necessities. So for example, universally you find that kindness and intelligence is something that both men and women desire in uh, prospective mates. On the other hand, there are other traits that are much more important to men when choosing women or vice versa, much more important to women when choosing men. So for example, when it comes to physical beauty, uh, around the world, in extraordinarily different cultures, you consistently find that men rate the physical beauty of prospective mates as more important. Now, this doesn't mean that women don't also desire beauty in men. Of course they do, but it's not as important. On the other hand, when it comes to any marker associated to social status, this is judged much more important to women around the world. Now here, by the way, I'm gonna point to something that speaks to what you mentioned earlier about the importance of culture and the contingencies of culture. 
how you judge social status might vary across cultures. So in one culture, the number of cattle that I have is what makes me the top dog. In other cultures, it's the number of degrees that I have in my wall from Ivy League and other, right? So so the, the metrics by which we ascribe social status changes, but in every culture, irrespective of the culture organization, women place a much higher premium on social status than do men. So that would be one example where we constantly see sex differences across the two sexes. Hmm. So you've done a lot of research on marketing all kind, from all kinds of angles, but I want to tackle this whole idea that you have in the book about these parasitic ideas. So how do people get infected with these ideas you talk about? What are the tools that are used to indoctrinate people? Yeah, so I think it it's all starts in the universities. Uh, as I often state, it sounds as though I'm joking, but I'm not. It takes intellectuals to come up with really dumb ideas. Uh, all of these dumb ideas start within the university ecosystem. And the reason why they start is because... Uh, those ideas are perfectly decoupled from real world consequences, right? So for example, the reason why, so I'm housed in a business school. The reason why many of these parasitic ideas haven't been as prevalent in the business school or say in the engineering school is because there are consequences to your, to use the term that you use to, to bullshit, right? You can't build bridges using postmodernist physics. You can't develop Uh, a mathematical model of consumer choice using postmodern math. There are consequences to your stupidity. On the other hand, in many of the humanities and in some of the other kind of uh, fuzzy social sciences, you're able to pontificate nonsense to a bunch of impressionable kids who don't have the intellectual confidence to, you know, resist your stupidity. And therefore, those ideas become infected in people's brains. And then eventually those Dreadful ideas become the prime minister of Canada. So our, our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, is a walking manifestation of every one of the parasitic ideas that I discuss in the book, postmodernism, cultural relativism, right? He's developing a feminist foreign policy and feminist economics. What does it mean, feminist foreign policy? What, what does that mean, right? So uh, these well, bad ideas... Go ahead, go ahead. Well, based on what you said earlier, if you're talking about uh, equity feminism, then that's fine because it's just making sure that this is that there's an inequality that's built in in anything that they come up with, any of the policies. Oh, but it's much more than that. Uh, so there, there's even if it, so if it were what you just said, then of course I would be fully on board with you. But it, it's, the, the the lunacy goes well beyond that. So for example, now and I discussed this in the book, the Quebec. Uh, minister of the environment got into big trouble because at one point when they were talking about doing environmental studies for you know particular projects that they want to work on he said well what do you mean don't we just use the scientific method to adjudicate these problems and he was accused of being a huge racist right a huge bigot because no the scientific method apparently is only one of many ways of knowing there is the indigenous way of knowing there's the scientific way of knowing uh, no there isn't there's only the scientific way right there's There is no Lebanese Jewish way of knowing. There is no Maronite way of knowing. You could have your own culture, you could have your own folklore, but when it comes to adjudicating epistemology, when it comes to adjudicating issues of truth, the scientific method liberates us from our shackles, right? So I am an evolutionary psychologist that doesn't look at the world through the lens of a Lebanese Jewish evolutionary psychologist, Just, I just look through the lens of the scientific method. So these type of reflexes, Nadia, come from all of these idea pathogens that I describe in the book, and they're dreadful, 
And unless people have the courage to you know, fight back against them, we're going to be on a long train to hell. Well, it seems that it would be hard to argue with the scientific method, but it's funny that you're talking about how all these ideas come from academia because you're an academic. And I'm sure that a lot of your foes would argue that you're, you know, planting, you know, infectious ideas <laughs> through the information that you're putting out because they're so convinced that they're right. I'm not taking anybody's side. Sure. I'm just saying they would probably argue the same. But I've heard that, uh, I know that you use social media a lot, unlike most of your colleagues who tend to kind of stay in their lane in terms of sticking to like academic journals and stuff. Um, are you still getting a lot of flack for kind of being out there in, in kind of the uh, pop culture realm in a way that most academics are not? I do. Now, look, uh, 99% of all the feedback that I receive is extraordinarily positive. But 1% of a very big number still weighs on you, right? So the way the human brain works, as you well know, is you don't notice all of the incredible positive stuff that people send your way. You only remember, you know, the hate that you get. So if I were to contextualize the totality of feedback that I receive, then I would say the, the overwhelming majority is very favorable towards you know, to, to what I do. Uh, but of course you're right. I do trigger a lot of people and, and they come of all, they come from all angles. Some of them might be just random people on social media. In many cases, it's fellow academics who, as you said, they do stay in their lanes. They don't like someone who is irreverent, who speaks their mind. You know, it really frustrates me that academics who should be intellectual Navy SEALs, right? I, I often draw the analogy that when we pick commandos, military commandos, we're picking them based on their courage, their bravery, right? Uh, we should be picking along similar traits of courage when it comes to intellectual commandos. And yet academia really selects for, you know, uh, timidity, cowardice, Uh, stay in your lanism. And uh, that's a real shame because we have the opportunity to shape minds. And yet most people are too cowardly to ever say something that is out of their lane. Well, maybe also they don't want to offend people. It's kind of the same kind of political correctness that's, you know, uh, pervading much of society, I would think, in some ways. People are so afraid to offend these days. I mean, in every walk of life, this is how I see it. I don't know if you agree. No, I, I do agree, but I think it's a it's a terrible uh, reflex to have. Look, you should you should always be kind uh, to whomever is deserving of your kindness. Uh, you should always be polite, but you should never refrain from telling the truth in the service of managing someone's feelings. Uh, in chapter one of the parasitic mind, I talk about you know, what is the unique combination of genes that make up who I am that led me to become the person that I am? And there are really two ideals that drive, you know, my life trajectory, and that is truth and freedom. So when I go to sleep at night and I put my head on my pillow, uh, I have a very exacting code of personal conduct. I need to feel as though I was never cowardly at any point throughout the day. I did. I never saw an attack on truth that I allowed to persist without me intervening. Very much like if I see, if I hear someone crying in an alley because they're being mugged or attacked, I could be one of two people. I could either walk away pretending I didn't hear the cries or I could try to intervene. Well, for better or worse, I'm the guy who intervenes. And so for me, political correctness is actually a, it's akin, and I talk about this in the book, it's akin to the spider wasp's sting. So let me briefly explain it to your viewers. The spider wasp, 
uh, will look for a much bigger spider and then it stings it, rendering it paralyzed. It becomes a zombie, which it then carries into its burrow. It lays an egg on it while the spider is fully alive. And then as the egg hatches, it starts eating the spider in vivo. Well, I argue that political correctness is exactly the spider wasp sting, right? It leads us quietly into the abyss of infinite lunacy uh, while we are zombified, afraid to speak a word because lest we might hurt somebody's feelings. I'm willing to bet that if I asked you, who are the five most interesting people that you could think of in your life or in history, I bet you they're going to have one thing in common, Nadia. They all spoke their mind. Nobody remembers fence sitters. Everybody, the world is shaped by people who speak their minds. So speak your mind. Yeah. You also refer to that as like letting loose your inner honey badger or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I call it activate your inner honey badger. So what, why honey badger? What does that mean? Yeah. So the honey badger is an extraordinary animal because it is the size of a small dog. And yet it is so fierce. It is so ferocious that you can have, I mean, you can go on Google now, just do a search. You can find clips where six adult lions will approach a honey badger and the honey badger will start signaling such ferocity that you see sort of the lions confused and they say, look, I, I don't want any part of this guy. This guy is insane, right? And so I argue that you need to activate your inner honey badger when you are defending your principles. Now, if your principles are well articulated, are well reasoned, if you are operating from first principles, you should be a honey badger. This is precisely why people often say, well, why don't you, how come you're never, you don't get canceled, Professor Saad? It seems like you're impervious to being canceled. Well, it's because I'm a honey badger. If you come after me, you better know what you're doing because if your arguments are not proper, I'm gonna take you to town. And so, but of course, most people, because they are cowardly, the second you go boo, they kind of go into the corner, hide in a, fe a fetal position and suck their thumbs. I hate that, right? I, I admire courage and I despise cowardice. By the way, and I won't say who it is, but stay tuned. I will be chatting on my show on December 15th with someone who I consider to be arguably the most courageous person that I have ever known. And he hails from the Middle East. And so when you watch that show, you will know what a honey badger looks like. Ooh, I'm curious now. <laughs> Come on, who is it? You have to let us I, know. I can't say, but he is from the Middle East and he has taken extraordinary risks to do what he does. Uh, by the way, this is exactly what I tell people when they come to me and they write to me and say, you know, Professor Saad, uh, I so admire you and, you know, you've given me sanity and so on, but I'm afraid to speak out. And then they give you the reasons why they're afraid. I'm afraid to lose my job. I'm afraid to be unfriended by my friends on Facebook. There's always an excuse why they shouldn't speak. Well, once you watch this guy chat with me, uh, you will feel pretty small if you are afraid to speak out in the West when this guy spoke out. Uh, against f folks who are unbelievably scary. Hmm. I like how you uh, pitched your, how you promote that that episode, though. But I'll definitely be watching. Um, I feel I feel like there's this growing anti-liberal movement uh, in the West uh, that includes 
a group of people who are kind of uh, the, how can I say, the flag carriers. And I would say that you're one of those people. And then there are other people who are maybe even more, a lot more controversial than you, but they also espouse similar ideas about, uh, you know, anti kind of like radical uh, feminism. And so, for example, Jordan Peterson, who I know you're friends with. Yes. Um, and then Ben Shapiro. Yes. And I would say Joe Rogan also, not that, although he's kind of more of a neutral figure, but he, he likes to like point things out um, when he feels like when it's going too far. So do you consider yourself as an anti-liberal person politically or a conservative person politically? You're right. Uh, n- no. So I'm, I'm not anti-liberal because I consider myself to be the definition of what it is to be classically liberal. Uh, now the re- now here I'm going to give you an answer that I'm, it's not that I'm trying to be coy and evasive. I don't like uh, political appellations uh, or you know uh, tags because I'm truly an ideas guy. On some issues, you will think that I am the biggest liberal on earth. On other issues, you'll think, oh my god, that sounds conservative. So let me give you examples of both. If you ask me about the death penalty, you would think, oh my God, he's conservative. For example, I think that if you have uh, raped and killed five children and we can find your DNA on the five children, there is absolutely no moral concerns that I have with getting rid of you. Any any more than getting rid of a cancer, right? We don't say, but it's not fair, you know, cancer cells have a right to live. If you are preying on you know, you're a serial pedophile who rapes and kills children. Let's get rid of you. There's absolutely no problem with that. So that would be considered, ooh, that's a conservative position. Or when it comes to immigration, I don't, I think it's perfectly natural for any country, that's why it's called a country, to have the protection of its borders. So open borders is a dreadful idea. That would be called, ooh, conservative. On the other hand, when it comes to transgender rights, gay rights, all these kinds of things, I'm about as socially liberal as you can be. So in other words, it's hard to pinpoint what I am because I don't ascribe to tribalism. I don't like to call myself a liberal or a conservative. I'm an ideas guy who judges each idea on its own merits. On some cases, I'm conservative. In other cases, I'm ultra liberal. Does that give you an answer? Yeah, definitely. And I, I agree with you. I think a lot that's this is a problem right now. I think in, in the West, in the US, especially where there are only two parties, I think a lot of people don't identify with all the ideas of one or the other side. But would you have been able to vote for one of the candidates in the recent US election? And which candidate would you? If I were American? Yeah, if you were American. Yes. Uh, if I were American, I would have definitely uh, voted for Trump, not because I have posters of Trump in my bedroom, which my wife and I use as foreplay, uh, because oftentimes people think that the minute that I say something positive about Trump or I don't criticize Trump all day the way every other academic does, somehow I must be in love with Trump and I you know, sit and you know, uh, uh, caress my poster of Trump on, in my bedroom. Th- that's not at all what it is. But when it comes to those two choices, I think that Trump would have has dealt and would have dealt with many of the idea pathogens that I speak of in the book much better. Now, people often ask me, how come you seem to criticize all these leftist ideas more than you do ideas on the right? Well, that's because I navigate, I operate, I live in the university ecosystem, and the university ecosystem is overwhelmingly leftist. All of the idea pathogens that I discuss in the book all stem 
from imbecilic leftist professors. Now, that doesn't mean that the right doesn't come up with its own stupid ideas, but those are not the ideas that I'm exposed to, right? So the fact that I don't criticize those ideas doesn't mean that I support those ideas. So for example, uh, a Republican senator is more likely to be one who disagrees or rejects evolution, right? In that case, I would be criticizing him and he is a Republican, right? But most of these dreadful ideas that I discuss, if not all of them, come from the left. And so to that extent, Trump is the anti of these bad ideas. So for example, Trump is the one who uh, uh, outlawed uh, critical race theory for federal employees, right? Uh, do, do you know what critical race theory is? Not exactly. Critical race theory is this completely wacky, idiotic, racist set of ideas that are masquerading as academic that basically kind of reverses the narrative uh, of racism. So, uh, you know, whites are endemically racist. Whites have to, you know, uh, apologize for their past sins. Uh, and so on and so forth. So, for example, you have seminars at uh, in companies where you try to, you know, have the white employees accept their white supremacy and their white fragility. Now, imagine, Nadia, if you were to do the opposite of that, right? We're going to have seminars where black people accept their faults and where they accept their black supremacy and black, right? So, Critical race theory is basically a dreadfully racist set of ideas that masquerades as social justice. Well, Donald Trump came along and said, sorry, no federal employee is going to be uh, prone to this kind of nonsense. So, so from that perspective, I would have supported Trump because he is the outsider who could implement these cataclysmic changes. And re regrettably, now that Biden is going to assume office, I think we're going to go back to the same old swamp. And so from that perspective, I would have voted for Trump. Yeah. Um, well, I think personally, my view is that sometimes when people are behind, you kind of have to overcompensate in some way to re-equalize the situation. And maybe it is time for that specific rule that you talked about to be you know, taken away. I don't know. Um, I'm not a big fan of Trump, but I, I am going to agree that from a marketing perspective uh, from marketing himself he's he's pretty great and genius at that I mean yes. <laughs> he's he's really good at that um, but so I just want to wrap this up sure. with your ideas on how what what advice would you give or words of wisdom would you give as this part of the world the Middle East is kind of just starting to open up um, many of the the Gulf countries are changing the laws to create a more equal society a more modern society what words of caution uh, would you say to them uh, it goes back to something we talked about briefly earlier uh, reject any form of identity politics, judge people as individuals. So if you and I got to know each other, Nadia, I wouldn't give one damn that you are a woman or a transgender person or a person of color or you're Maronite or you're Dirzi or you're Jewish. I would judge you based on the totality of your personhood. And if you navigate through the world using that, uh, you know, humanist perspective, then uh, it makes it uh, possible to vaccinate yourself against all of the tribal hate that comes with either political tribes or ideological tribes or religious tribes. And as you well know, the Middle East is extraordinarily tribal, right? So 
if we get rid of that kind of reflex and really judge people strictly based on the merits and flaws of their personhood, I think, my goodness, the Middle East is such a rich place in all sorts of ways. Imagine if we got rid of all this nonsense and we could just all live together in you know, universal love. I know it sounds cliche, but I really mean that. And we ascribe to science, to logic, to reason, and not to superstition. My God, what a beautiful place it would be. Yeah, agreed. And I, I love the fact that now with social media and the access to information that uh, this generation has, that that's kind of happening um, in many places and people are uh, starting to see the world in this way. And I hope that more and more people will have this humanist uh, approach and start to shed these uh, this clothing that that kind of shackles them into ideologies that aren't serving the greater good. So I, I hope that that, that happens. Um, Professor Saad, I'm so glad you came on the show today. <laughs> I, I knew there was going to be some some name joke coming up. Well done. Well played. It was a real pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. Same to you. And thank you so much for taking the time today. Pleasure. Cheers. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on your way out. And I'll see you soon.